We're teaching a series for Advent. Advent is a time that we prepare for the incarnation or Christmas, you could say, for Jesus' birth. It's a traditional church holiday or season where we slow down our services to kind of focus in on Christmas. Um, our series has been called the Caesars of Christmas. And for us, we are looking at challenging the ways we celebrate this consumer um, holiday, or however you want to describe it in your own life, this rushing, uh, busy uh, uh, reindeer and keeping up with the Kringles and decking the halls and carols and, and watching Rudolph the reindeer, rain, Red-Nosed Reindeer Holiday, whatever it is. Um, we want to just say this is our story to tell. Christmas is the Christian story to tell, and it seems like big brands in the malls and uh, um, the, the, the ads and the advertisers have stolen our holiday. Would you agree? Um, so this morning, we're going to talk about consumerism, and we're not talking about it for the place of uh, condemnation or shame or even guilt. We're just talking to create some perspective. And so we're calling it the Caesars of Christmas because when the gospel writers used uh, language to describe Jesus, they took the same words that were used to describe the Caesars. Catch this real quick. In the first century, by the time Jesus is born, there were already words used to describe Caesar Augustus. And when the gospel writers write about the autobiography of Jesus, or the biography of Jesus, excuse me, they write using and stealing the words, the exact same words that were only used to describe the Caesars, starting with Caesar Augustus. For example, Caesar Augustus was known as Lord, Kyrios, and Savior. He was the savior of the world. He was the prince of peace. He was the bringer of peace. He was the, um, uh, uh, the cosmic son of God. These were all first century uh, words and phrases used to describe Caesar who was around uh, a couple of dozen years before Jesus was even born. So why would the Christians choose to use the same words that's, that were used for, Christ, uh, for Caesar to describe Jesus? And it's simple. In the Roman Empire, you could worship whatever God you wanted to worship, as long as you also worship the Caesars. So when the Christians chose to use the same exact words, they now had to, to define what God they worshipped, Caesar or Christ. Because Caesar can't be Lord if Jesus is Lord. Caesar can't be the savior of the world. It's, if Jesus is the savior of the world, he can't bring peace. If Jesus brings peace, he can't be the son of God if Jesus is the son of God. Are you with me? In other words, you had to choose. And unfortunately for those Christians in the early first century, that came at the cost of their lives. Many of them died for the confession that Jesus is Kyrios or, or Lord, not Caesar. And in a similar context, 2,000 years later, we sit in a culture that says there are lots of deities and Caesars and gods in our world. And we need to now put a line in the stand and decide who we worship, the Caesars of the world or the one true living God, Jesus Christ. 
And so during this holiday, we're just saying uh, the gospel announcement of Jesus' birth is covered with all this history of Caesar and making the Christians decide, and we're doing the same thing. So we started off by talking a couple of weeks ago. I, I suggested a few of the topics, and one of them was the self. We live in an individualistic society, an isolation society that says um, you are king and God of the world. It's the I generation, the iPhone, the iPad, the you, um, the MySpace, the Facebook. Everything in our society is built around our needs, our preferences, our desires, and, and we can test whether or not we're following that when we don't get our way. What happens? Well, if you're a kid, you throw a tantrum. Or if you're a grown adult and you're married, you probably do the same thing. Or you just get frustrated or something inside of you said that says, that's not fair. That's an injustice to not have my own way. So we talked about ourself and the response during this season is to worship the one true God. So we sing songs. We read stories. We tell the true story of what life is really about. It's not about me or you or us. It's about him and what he's doing. You with me? Um, and then Bill talked last week, and I thought this was very prophetic, prophetic. It was a conversation on busyness. And he challenged our culture of, of people that um, absolutely complain about being too busy. Yet, we, we, we cheer it and celebrate the fact that we, have, we feel important when our schedules are full. And, and, and for those of you that know what these words are, um, uh, we're constantly facing, uh, uh, driving, doing status updates. We are taking Instagram photos and projecting to people what we look like. Or we'll be in a meeting and we'll miss the person in our present moment because we're commenting or about what someone posted an hour ago. And so we often, we're, we're, we've become a fractured um, we've become we've become a fractured society. We've become uh, we have a difficult time being present in one place. And so during the holidays, we said, "What would it look like for us to challenge the the norms?" To social media is not bad, or being busy is not necessarily bad if it's the right stuff. But how do we be present with God in this season? How do we show up to a party and be fully there, not somewhere else? You with me? So that was last week's, and uh, you need to listen to that podcast if you if you weren't here. And this morning, I'm going to talk about consumerism. So. Um, consumerism. Let's start with, here's why. Uh, two in three people in the United States will go into debt just to afford Christmas this season. Two of three people in this room, two-thirds, will go into debt to afford stuff like this. Um, we spend, in the United States, $450 billion on Christmas stuff, on Christmas trees, on presents, on gift wrapping paper, and um, and I guess as you get older, you get uh, better wrapping paper. That's what happens. You just you learn how to wrap presents better. Um, this is what I'm learning now. Um, uh, but anyways, we spend 450 billion dollars on consumerism. And I want to just define consumerism isn't um, isn't just to consuming stuff or just um, purchasing items. And it's not just a product of capitalism. It's the preoccupation of society with the acquisition of consumer goods or it's the attempt to satisfy needs and desires by purchasing more stuff. So this is why consumerism is, we're, we want to challenge it because here's what happens with consumerism. Something inside of you feels better about yourself, your identity when you buy more things. Something about getting a new pair of shoes for that perfect party makes you feel better about yourself. Something about saving up for that better car projects some type of energy, some type of good, warm, fuzzy feeling, some type of I'm the king of the world experience 
when you get that new car or that next Apple product or whatever it is for you, the, 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 the pump shoes or maybe it's organic food or maybe it's the, the five, pump no, or five pump no foam latte or whatever it is rather than making it at home. Something inside of us, has uh, something in consumerism has allowed us to feel a certain way about buying stuff. Um, consumerism is fixing ourselves. It's, it's uh, meeting a need or desire within us by buying more things. It's this lie that says if you have more, you'll feel better, you'll be more comfortable, you'll feel safer, and you'll have more opportunities. Do we know what we're talking about? Can we relate? Because I'll be, I'll be fine being the only one in the room preaching to myself, but I'm pretty sure there's one or two of you that understand what I'm dealing with here. So we want to talk about this type of, uh, this holiday season and how do, we, how do we simply have a perspective as followers of Jesus that are biblical and how do we live in response to what the Bible teaches about money and wealth and the world perspective and how do we, um, how do we apply it today in a, in a culture that says, let's just, let's just buy that flat screen TV. Because the problem is this, this, just on a side note, if I said, hey, it's ridiculous if some of you buy Santa Claus blow-up, four-foot blow-up dolls that go on top of your house during the season, you'd be like, yeah, that's kind of weird. You know, like, yeah, I agree. It's weird to buy the big stuffed animals for, or the, the reindeer on top of the roof. That's, you know, it's, it's just decorations. But if I said to some of you that, hey, to buy the extra few inch flat screen TV because your flat screen's not big enough, you'd be offended because our society has taught us that we deserve it. That issue is what I'm talking about. It's the thing beneath the thing beneath the thing. Are you with me? Okay. Wow, you guys are really quiet. 9 a.m. was like, yeah, let's do it. Woo! No, they weren't like that. But um, we have a lot of new people. I mean, I don't feel like you understand me right now. Am I trying to sit down? Like, what's going on? Okay, let's go to 1 Timothy. Let's check out this verse. Um, so, uh, yeah, cool. So, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Here's what Paul writes to a guy named Timothy. He's a pastor in Ephesus, and we're doing a series on Ephesians, so you have some background for it. But here's what he says at the end of his um, little pastoral instruction to Timothy. Verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Let me say this one more time. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Now, uh, what does God provide us with? Everything. What does that leave out? Nothing. God, it's much better. Good, good, job. good job. So let's, let's just read this one more time. Command those who are rich. Show of hands, please, not timid hands. How many of you think of someone else? When you hear command those who are rich, how, how many of us think of Beverly Hills? Wall Street. How many of us think about that neighbor that has the bigger house or that guy that drives a better car at work? How many of, how many of you think of someone else? Can we just be on it? Let's just, it's safe to be real. Okay, thank you. Look around. Appreciate it. I'm pulling teeth. I mean, I'm working hard. It's cold. I'm shivering up here. My hands are numb. I didn't have eggnog last night. I'm bummed. So, command those who are rich, our mind immediately goes to someone else. I think that is the main 
problem with our society today. Here's some statistics that will help us get some perspective. And again, statistics are helpful for some. This is just giving us a perspective of of the world. Top 20% of the world's population consumes 86% of all of its goods. 93% of the world's population doesn't own a car. If you drove here, you're in the top 7%. Welcome, my wealthy friends. Uh, The total income of of American churchgoers is $5.2 trillion. Those that confess Jesus Christ and go to church on Sundays in the United States, their combined total income is $5.2 trillion. It would take 1% of the total income of those Christians to lift up 1 billion people out of extreme poverty. 1% of our combined income. Okay, that's cool. Um, American Christians make up 5% of the world's population but control 50% of the wealth. 5% of the world's population... 50% 50% of its wealth. Um, the U.S. makes up 6% of the world's population, but consumes 50% of its resources. Keep going. Um, thank you, Alyssa. Can we just give it up for Alyssa and Jay? Thank you for doing your work up there. I know this is getting serious, so why don't I just share a quick joke? So we do a, a volunteer appreciation. Not even a joke, just a story. Volunteer appreciation uh, every year, and we invite our leaders that come and just do set up and tear down. Our worship team gets here early to set up sound system, to, to practice in a short amount of time, to give their gifts. None of them really get paid, so it's all because they want to serve the church. Alyssa's here. She sets up lyrics and does this for, for us, but Alyssa got an award on Friday, and it's, mo- uh, it's the Worship on the Job Award. So... What is the worship on the job? Well, we have Rookie of the Year, Volunteer Appreciation, or Volunteer of the Year, different fun awards like that. But I don't know if you watch her in worship. She'll be doing the lyrics, and all of a sudden, they're not caught up to speed because she's probably on the ground worshiping God with her hands up. She worships on the job. So anyways, here's some more. 40% of the world lacks basic sanitation. One billion people don't have clean water. One billion. 800 million will not eat today. 300 million are children. They will not have a, have a meal today. Two billion people have no electricity. One percent of, uh, of the world owns a computer. And one percent have a college education um, or a college degree. Go to the next one. Okay. Americans spend more money on trash bag than half the world does on all its goods. We spend more money deciding what we put our extra stuff and junk into than most of the world spends on all of its gross products. Go to the next one. Uh, to provide, base, this is from the World Bank from 2006. To provide, to basically fix the world's problems is what they decided. How much would it cost? To provide the world with uh, basic edu- uh, education for all, it would cost us $6 billion. So to make sure everyone gets an education, $6 billion. To make sure everyone has water and they have sanitation, sewers, and stuff like that, $9 billion around the world. To provide health and nutrition so that people can eat. It would cost $13 billion. That's $28 billion to fix most of the issues that extreme poverty um, are facing. Here's some perspective. The U.S. spends $8 billion on cosmetics every year. The U.S. spends $20 billion on ice cream every year. That's $28 billion. Now, I'm part of the problem with the ice cream. I'll be the first to admit. <laughs> Yogurt land, paradise, the paradise, whatever it is, that, that, that salted caramel... Ice cream, it, I, I don't like sweets, but somehow this summer I discovered a sweet tooth. But anyways, uh, perspective, $28 billion on cosmetics and ice cream. Wow. 
Uh, and here's the kicker. If you make $25,000 or more, you make more money than 90% of the entire world of the 7 billion people that live here. If you make 50000 or more, you make more than 99% of the world. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Now who do you think of? So, point number one, we are rich. That's the end of point one. Now what? What I'd like to do this morning is just to recognize that we are wealthy. And when the world thinks of those who are rich, they think of us. And I want to just look at what the scripture teaches us as to what we do with our resources, what to do with the way we see the world, what to do in a time, in a place that says, let's buy more and more stuff to show our appreciation and love and to fix the needs of ourselves. What do we do with, with what God says? You with me? Genesis chapter 1. If you, don't, if you don't have a Bible, you might need one today. There's some green Bibles around the room. And um, also, if you have an, an app, a phone that can download apps, we have a version. Uh, you can follow us there. They'll have the notes and the statistics on your phone right there. Or we will have notes right here for you as well. But um, prefer, and just so you know, my, my preference is this, this, the written word. But uh, I understand some of you that are lazy. So first, gen- <laughs> just kidding. Uh, Genesis chapter 1. God creates the heavens and the earth. He creates everything in it in six days. And on the sixth day, he creates humanity, male and female, in his image. And then this is what he says to them. Verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So God creates all of the earth and everything in it. And he creates humanity in a place where humanity is over all of creation, and he commissions them. First of all, he blesses them. And the word for bless is, um, to bless is barak. Can you go to that one? Barak. Um, and say barak. And then he says to them, subdue. The word subdue is kabosh. I'm giving you some Hebrew lessons. Let's go. Kabosh. Next time you're talking to your wife and you're like, I'm, I'm supposed to subdue you. Kabosh. <laughs> Don't do that. And then he says, rule, radah. So the idea is that God creates everything. And he's created it all for himself. And then he says to humanity, now I bless you to steward and care for what's mine. You are now responsible for this creation And so the partnership with God is to partner with him in the stewarding of all creation, according to Genesis. So um, you could say that it's all his, and humanity is called to live like it. All of it's his, and we're called to live like it's his. The the image or the the metaphor I'll use is is the property manager. How many of you uh, have lived in an apartment complex with lots of apartments and had a property manager? Some of you can get this. So property manager is not the owner. Okay, and he, he's not supposed to act like the owner. His job is to maintain the properties, the, the, the open spaces. When there's an open uh, apartment, he'll fix the apartment, he'll paint the apartment, he'll take care of all the needs, and he'll prepare the place for the, for the next tenant. And when that tenant comes, he fixes as, as things come up, lighting fixtures, leaks, plumbing, all that stuff. The property manager, his job is to take care of the property on behalf of the owner. 
You understand? Now, what would happen if the property manager, every time a, a, a new uh, a tenant would leave, what if, their jo- what, what if what they did was they created the space and then they tried to live in it? Or they tried to make the space for themselves and all of a sudden there's a bunch of extra rooms and houses in this, this apartment room and the, the property manager is trying to occupy the space when his whole job is to create a space for others to occupy it. Well, what would happen if the, uh, the property manager began to act like the owner and say, this is mine and not allow the space to be used for its intended purpose? They wouldn't be doing their jobs, would they? The picture of Genesis chapter 1 is that everything we have on this planet is God's. God's given us everything we need for our enjoyment. It's all His, our families, our jobs, the fact that we have hands to work, the fact that we have breath, uh, air to breathe, that is all from God and we're supposed to live like it's His and steward our lives, our resources, our relationships, our jobs and everything else in it as if He was the owner and we're the property manager. And we give account on on behalf of ourselves. Your pool company, is it his or is it yours? Your car, is it his or is it yours? Do you use, do you steward your life in a way that is looking for opportunities for God to partner with you and your stuff? And I'll say stuff loosely. I was just talking to a girl after the 9 a.m. and she was saying, uh, you know what I realized in the service today is that these foster kids are not mine. My kids are not mine. I'm stewarding my children and the children that come to my home on behalf of God. I was like, you, yeah, I'm going to use that line. And I did. So copyright, Megan. <laughs> Megan, yeah. Anyways, so we become, it's all his. We live like it. Let's go to Genesis chapter 12. So this becomes a theme of how humanity is supposed to live in view of our relationship to God. And we know that fails, right? So Genesis 3, sin enters into the world, and God begins to uh, redeem all that was lost. And in Genesis chapter 12, we meet this strange guy named Abram. And God kind of picks up this plan to redeem the cosmos, and it starts with Abram. And it says this to Abram, "Um, The Lord has said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. Go from your security, your identity, from your future, and your inheritance. Everything that gives you security, comfort, and stability. Leave all of that. That's what the translation should read in ancient Near East culture. And God says this to him, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you this is what uh, scholars have called blessed to be a blessing the call of God's people specifically through Abram who became Abraham who had many sons um, it's that Abraham became a funnel for blessing he he wasn't a a bull he wasn't a container where God just blesses him to grow a bigger bull. But, but God blesses Abraham and the nation of Israel to be a blessing to others. So it's all God's in the first place, but as the blessings come in, the whole point is to bless everyone else with whatever it is God's blessed you with. God's generous to you, so you're generous to others. You're a funnel. Or you could say it's kind of like a FedEx delivery guy. It's where the FedEx guy 
somebody prepared a package and they give him a package and his job is to steward and, and take responsibility and care and deliver that package to the rightful person. Right? So he receives what's not his. He stewards it until it gets delivered to the right person. You could say that if the FedEx guy took what's not his and made it his own and he thought it was mine, that he wouldn't be doing his job. Right? That if he received a blessing like, like a gift and his job is to deliver that gift to the other person, that he wouldn't be doing what he's called to do if he just held on to the package like it's his own. And you, could, could you, how offended would you be if you prepared a package for your distant relatives, you know, the mittens that you spent all this time knitting for the holidays and the scarf and the, you know, the collection of, of cute little ornaments and all of a sudden that guy steals your package and makes it for himself, keeps it for himself. Do you think maybe God feels that way sometimes? Now, there's no condemnation. God loves us as we are. But do you think that the perspective we're being taught through Scripture is that if it's all His, and the calling of partnership with God is to be blessed so that we can bless others, why do we keep pursuing more and more and more and more stuff for ourselves? So one perspective is we're called to be property managers. The other perspective when it comes to our stuff is to say, um, how would a FedEx delivery guy do it? Right? As you think about your life, your family, your relationships, your resources, your talent, your time, your energy, your, your passions, your imaginations, how would a FedEx guy do it? Okay, so this idea, this theme of blessed to be a blessing is seen all throughout the Old Testament. And and I, I bring it up because it's really important. It, it impacts the people of God in so many ways. And the reasoning is profound. So uh, we know that the people of Israel, Abraham does have many sons, and uh, they create a whole nation. That nation gets enslaved to Egypt, and they get out of Egypt, and God gives them the law and says, you're going to be a kingdom of priests. You're going to represent me on earth. And it gives them the law. And then Deuteronomy chapter 24, you can go there. Just turn right from Genesis, a few books. Deuteronomy chapter 24, Moses is writing the people of God to remind them about the law. They're about to inherit the promised land. They're about to have their own identity as a people in a nation, their own space, their own borders. And, and Moses writes them to remind them of what the law says. Now, what's fascinating about God's law in the Old Testament, if you read it, is it has a lot of financial um, prohibitions and financial implications, that for some reason, the people of God, the way they are with their finances is really important to God. Let me say it again. The way the people of God live with their finances is really important to God. And so he makes laws and he writes laws into Leviticus, the end of Exodus and Deuteronomy that remind the people of how they are to live. So for example, and we can all relate to this story, verse, 20, uh, verse 19 of chapter 24. So, when you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back and get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. When the harvest 
uh, when you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Okay, so for those of us that are harvesting our grapes every year like we do, we, you know that if God wrote this, your heart is just like mine. Time out. That's my field, my vines, my, my workers. So I'm going to get as much out of my vines as possible. I'm going to bring the, the number one batter for knocking down those olives to those branches so we get it the first time. So we can have as much of those olives, as much as that wheat, as much of those, those uh, grapes as possible because it's mine. Right? It's mine. It's my hard work. It's my land. I paid for it. I've worked and labored for it. But what God says is you only get one shot. You only get one shot because I got to take care of the fatherless, the foreigners, and the widows. I got to take care of those that can't help themselves. So written into the law of the Old Testament is this idea that they're blessed by God to bless others. Their vineyard is not their own. Their vineyard is for others. Their olive branches are not their own. They're for others. They're for those that would never have a chance at owning an olive tree. That God somehow is saying that you, the way you are to live is to bless those kinds of people with whatever it is that you have. To live in a way that just, you know, makes sure that God will take care of them. It's called the gleaning rights or the gleaning laws of the Old Testament. And so we see, um, go to the next slide. We see that, uh, oh, here's why. Okay, so we see that written in, into this idea, written into the law is this law of bless, being blessed to bless others. I mean, it's written in the Old Testament. It's all throughout the Old Testament. And at one point, it'll say, who gives you the ability to work? So the idea of negotiating tithe with God, like, oh, I'll give you 10 and I'll keep 90. He's like, well, who even gives you the ability to work? Okay, let's pull back real quick. Um, and then here's the reasoning why. So why, if, if God said it, it's enough. Would you agree? If you were in a relationship with God and God says, you got to do this, that's enough. But he reminds us of why we do what we do. He says, remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That is why I commanded you to do this. Remember that you were slaves that you were the fatherless, that you were the widows, and that you were the foreigners. That you didn't, you didn't, you worked seven days a week. You didn't have a Sabbath, a day off. You didn't have festivals. You didn't have feasts. You couldn't even have land of your own. You were once like them, so I'm going to take care of them because you were once like them. So everything that you've received has been a generous grace act from God. In other words, there was nothing important about Israel except that God made a promise to Abraham. And because of that promise, God pulled them out of Egypt. And God's like, it's not because you're special. It's because I've given you grace and generosity. And because of my grace and generosity, you are gracious and generous with others. We don't do it just because. Think about what this means for us in Christ. We were slaves. We were without a father Christ has given us everything he has, his life, so that we can what? Hoard, buy the bigger house, compete with other people's false identities by clothes, cars, vacations, success, fame, or that we can become stewards of what was never ours in the first place. So that we can reveal the generosity of God when we give beyond our means. I mean, and, and as I'm speaking, what's crazy is I'm just looking at you guys and thinking about all the crazy stories in this room of God's radical generosity 
like you look at baskets filled, guys, we're doing it. I can look around the room and see people that have paid rent for other friends, that have sold extra stuff to cover mortgage payments, that have moved people from houses into apartments when they couldn't afford it, that have, have given above and beyond financially to get us into a building. I mean, guys, this is a reality we're experiencing here, but I'm, and I'm filled with joy just looking at you guys. But the point is that we continue to live as property managers. As, as FedEx deliverers, and we live at remembering why we do it in the first place. That, that when we start, ha- when we start uh, living that way, we push back against the Caesar of consumerism. You with me? Okay, a couple more before we close. Um, gosh. Okay, go to the next slide. Um, what is the next slide? Okay, Jesus. Okay, so uh, Jesus. Go to Matthew chapter 13. So we have these three perspectives from the Old Testament. We have the perspective of the world and who are the rich. And here's what Jesus says. And I I think this is fascinating. Go to uh, 13. And let's look at verse 3 real quick. So Jesus talks about, um, uh, tells a parable called the parable of the sower. Let's read this. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. Birds came up and ate it. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. Excuse me. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop 160 or 30 times what was sown. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus tells us a story or a parable about what happens when the word of God is preached or what happens when the proclamation of the kingdom or the kingdom experience happens in anyone's life. Now, you are all of these soils at any given uh, Sunday or any given time in life. It's not like you're the good soil right now. Some of you are in different places. And the point is that every time we hear a word from God preached, we're any of these soils, okay? What I find fascinating is as he describes the types of soil, Jesus to his, uh, as he describes it to his disciples, look at verse 22. He says this, When the word of God was preached, the seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. Now we've already confessed that we are rich, that we are the wealthiest people most of us, 99%, wealthier than 99% of the world. And what Jesus says is that the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth keep the word of God from growing fruit in your life. The word worry, let me go to the next slide. The word worry means to scatter or to divide. And uh, in Latin, actually, it's a, it's a use. The word anxious comes from this Latin term of being tortured to death by having your limbs to- pulled apart. That's pretty graphic, but that's the idea of what anxiety and worry does. So the idea, though, is uh, you being preoccupied with other things, being divided as a person. Have you ever had lunch with someone and, uh, after church, maybe, and, and as you're sitting there talking, all of a sudden you're remembering what you have to do on Monday, and you're no longer present in the conversation? You're now worried about that, or it's Saturday evening, and your wife wants to wrap presents, and all you can do is think about the Sunday message you have the next morning at 5 a.m. to wake up and prepare. Some of you have those experiences, you know? But the worry... Of this life, 
They keep you divided and distracted. And um, it's fascinating because it's the worries of this life that makes us trust in the deceitfulness of wealth. It's the fact that we worry that makes us trust in wealth. How many of you are worried about your retirement? You've got you to make more money now so that you can save more money for then, right? Okay, some of you, yeah. So how many of you are worried, um, or, or how many of us place all this, these, this um, expectation into the stuff? I mean, let, let's just like, how, let's talk about uh, what wealth promises. Wealth promises to alleviate the worry. If you just have the bigger house, you'll have more room to welcome more people in. If you just have the flat screen TV, then you can welcome more people in for your, fa- your football party. If you, a, f- a perfect example, when I was, my wife and I moved a year ago to an apart, uh, a, a house that we're renting. And we lived in the same one bedroom apartment uh, right by Portfolio for three and a half years. And when we moved into this house, uh, Alex's sister was going to move in with us. She did. She's still our roommate. And we were excited because we're going to have extra room. We're planning on what would it look like to have a family, start a family. And and luckily, no family members or friends here that are pressuring us. If you are pressuring us, stop. We'll do what we want. But anyways, we... um, my mom was in the first service. But it's so funny. But so we're like, we'll have a family eventually. We'll, we'll be able to entertain. We'll be able to host our leadership meetings and all that stuff. It's, oh, look at what this promises, right? Now, we were prepared for the extra rent, but what we didn't think about, and this is my fault, I don't really think about these things, but what we didn't think about was the, the, the cost of all the furniture, going from a one-bedroom to a three with some living room space, not next to the kitchen, but actually a living room. For those of you that know what I'm talking about, um, ha- having enough furniture to welcome in those guests, having enough place settings to have those guests sit at your table. Do you know what I'm, I mean? So all of a sudden, what was so simple in the promise of this better life became more about having to afford and buy and get and need all this other stuff. And what I thought would be allevi- alleviated was definitely not. And it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger as we grow older and as we pursue these things. So worries of this life. So here's what Jesus is saying. Wealth in itself is not wrong. Having lots of money, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But trusting in wealth chokes the word of God in your life. In other words, trusting in wealth can strangle the work of God in your life. Trusting in the stuff we buy to alleviate our needs will choke out the word of God in your life. So we have property managers. We're FedEx delivery guys, we remember why and how God has been generous to us, and we recognize that there is some real opposition to God's work in our life that Jesus warns us about. Are you with me? Let me close with this. Let's go back to 1 Timothy um, chapter 6. Here's what, uh, so we have three, four different pictures of how we are to participate in the renewing of our minds that we recognize that there is a, a God of consumerism that is promising all of these things to us that we buy into every time we make a purchase, that we buy into every time we go into debt. And as followers of God, as the people of God, we're called to live in response to those gods. And today we have to choose consumerism or Christ. And God gives us plenty of, uh, of insights on how we are to live with our finances, with our lives. And here's what Paul says. Verse 17, let's read this again. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope or their trust in wealth, which is so uncertain, but put their hope in God, 
who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Do good. Be rich in good deeds. Be generous and willing to share. That's what our response is today. Be rich in good deeds. To be generous and to share what we have. Now, some of us have a lot more to share than others. Some of us don't have really much to share at all, but it doesn't matter what you have. It's what you do with what is already His. So my, as the worship lead, uh, team comes up, Here's what I want to do. I want, I want to just invite you to think about this. Um, maybe this is a story. I, uh, if you've ever purchased a new car, it's really easy to see how you go from owning something to being owned by something. When you buy a new car, you go from the old car where if your friends came in with dirty feet, it didn't really matter. Kids could be in the back, they could spill, you don't really care. You could throw a bunch of timber wood in there and stack it ceiling high, it don't even matter. Um, you could, you know, run it on empty, you can forget to do the oil change one, one month or whatever it is, it just doesn't really matter. But the moment you get that new car, all of a sudden everything changes. The kids have plastic wrappers, they can't even drink out of sippy cups, right? If it's raining, you're not going to drive them to Disneyland, Right? You're going to take someone else's car. If you're going on a road trip, nope, I can't put the miles on it. All of a sudden, what you have owned, owns you. And what God invites us into is to simply see everything as His. It's not, no longer mine. It, it's, what is, it's God's. So I guess the question I have is, what, what are you mining? What owns you? What are the things in your life that you've bought into that have promised to alleviate something that only God can alleviate? How do you this Christmas challenge the Caesars of our world and say, I, I'm going to tell the true story of Christmas. And that, that means practically opening up my home for strangers. That means practically inviting in people that can never invite me right back. That means practically I'm going to give above and beyond. That means practically there are people that I know that are sleeping at Lincoln Park and I need to help them get in a motel. That means practically I have some extra time to give. That means practically I don't know. What does it mean for you? But worship is not just singing. It's changing our minds and changing the way we live. Let's pray. Lord, we know that you, uh, in this church at least, we know that you are a God of grace and love. And yeah, some messages come right for the heart and right for the wallet, but we know that we do it out of grace, not that we earn your favor because we, we're already highly favored. And we know, Lord, that you love us as we are and that if we don't change anything else, you'd still love us the same. But Lord Jesus, I pray for mercy this morning. I pray that your spirit would bring a spirit of revelation and wisdom to choose to act differently, to continue to grow in our discipleship of what it means for us to be like Jesus. Only I can be Darren. And only I can do what you're asking me to do. So Lord, I pray for my friends and my um, my family here, I just pray for the grace and for the power to transform what is underneath the surface. What is underneath the thing that's underneath that's un underneath the thing. So Jesus, thank you for exposing this with light. And we just, we just give ourselves back to you. We ask you to teach us your ways in your name.